Two weeks ago when I preached, I couldn't hold it together. I don't know, kind of blacked out, I think, and I don't know what words came out. So I think I'll have a little bit better composure this week. Let's pray. God, we need your Holy Spirit to immerse us in Christ. You are sovereign. You control all things. Even when all things appear to be falling apart all around us, you are in control. Even when it seems chaotic and dark, your light is with us. We just can't see it. So I pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see that you are at work among us. Open our hearts to feel, to have affections for you, to know deep within us that you are good, you are God, you love us. God, we need you today. We need you every day. We need you to empower the words that I speak and to open the ears of my listeners. We need you to plant truth deep in us. May this day be marked as a great day of transformation, that those who have ailing bodies would be made whole, that those who have broken hearts may be restored to life, that those who are far from you may be brought near. Do that through this message today. Amen. Jake began for us last week our our sub-series from the book of Matthew, now we're going into the next three chapters, five through seven, on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're really excited to slow down in the Sermon on the Mount because it's a really important text that tells us a lot about what it means to be a disciple, a new covenant member. And the Sermon on the Mount has captivated thinkers of all kinds since Jesus first uttered this message. Moralists love the Sermon on the Mount because of its hard stance on the objectivity of the law of God. God has these really high standards and we should never cave in to the pressure of contemporary culture to change those standards. We should stick with God's truth. So these moralists then see Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as marching orders for his people. If you want to be on Jesus' team, do these things. But even non-religious people, secularists, like the Sermon on the Mount too because Jesus condemns hypocrisy and he, he argues for social justice matters. He cares for the poor and the oppressed. Jesus is a wise teacher and if people would just listen to him a little bit more, this world would be a lot better place to live in. But both of these perspectives miss the point. They make the exact same mistake. They see the Sermon on the Mount primarily as a message about what we ought to do instead of explaining to us who Jesus is and who we are in him. They both look at these words and hear Jesus saying, if you want a better life, do these things. Yet, as Jake introduced to us through the Beatitudes last week, the Sermon on the Mount is quite a countercultural even counterintuitive message. Even I was a little taken aback last week as Jake preached. I thought he would go one direction, and when he explained his main point, I was really struck with the depth and the beauty of what he proclaimed. 
especially at this time that my family's been going through some suffering, I now see the Sermon on the Mount from a completely different perspective. Every one of those Beatitudes that Jake led us through presented a promise to those who are suffering as a disciple of Christ in this world. So someone who's poor in spirit is a person who's been fighting this spiritual battle so long, they are just done, they're beat up. I have nothing left, God. And he promises eternal blessings for those people. Those who are mourning are sad at how sin has just ravished their lives, either their own sin or other people's sin. The meek are the ones who feel like they've just been trampled on over and over, and every time they try to stand up, they are trampled on again beneath someone else's feet. They hunger and thirst for righteousness, for God to finally show up and make everything that's broken right again. The Beatitudes tell us that our happiness isn't found in having all your problems solved today, but in receiving the glorious promises of God. Jesus, in the end of chapter 4 of Matthew, healed a bunch of people's ailments. People are rejoicing that, hey, everything is getting fixed now. But then he goes into this Sermon on the Mount saying, well, you think that's great. Blessed are those who are suffering because they will experience even greater happiness. They are the ones who know an even deeper blessing. Suffering is the path of Christ's disciples on their way to receiving these promises of God. And it's with this mindset that I want to go into this familiar passage on salt and light to to possibly offer you a little bit different understanding of the text. So let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, and see what Jesus says and how it ties into these Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and then put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So just as a reminder, like we always try to do every week, I want to quick summarize where we've come from. You might get tired of us saying the same thing every week, but it's vital to understanding this text. We don't want to read any text in isolation from what comes before and what comes after. So Matthew has been presenting to us Jesus as a new Israel. He's the head of a new covenant people, a whole new creation, humanity. And he's, Matthew's using the story of Israel to introduce Jesus. Just like Israel, he seemed to be born out of nowhere, come out of nowhere powerfully. And then he comes out of the waters as God's beloved son and goes into a time of temptation in the wilderness. 
And after this short wandering, he comes to a mountain where he brings the law of God to the covenant people. Just like Israel received the law after their great birth out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. And they come to Mount Sinai to receive God's instruction as a new covenant people. But this law that Jesus brings is different. Different from the one that Israel received on Mount Sinai. Isaiah had prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus came that when the Messiah came, he would magnify the law. He would take the law and make it bigger and take it deeper. He would show how the law goes right to the very heart of a person and judges their hearts. It's not just some external stone tablet that you read, but it goes right into your heart and condemns you. So it should be even more clear after the Messiah magnifies the law that nobody is righteous. When Israel first heard the law given to them on Mount Sinai, they looked at Moses and they all together said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. What a foolish thing for them to say. They didn't have the ability. They should have seen the law and been humbled by it. And so we too, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, We shouldn't be so eager to say, okay, I can do that. Let's go, team. We can do this. Jesus' words should humble us. They should leave us saying, who can do that? There is not a person on earth that could possibly do that. God, have mercy on me, for I am unable to keep this law. I want to emphasize this point over and over as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Because too often the Sermon on the Mount, especially this text about being salt and light is used to beat Christians up, to whip you into shape saying, be better salt, be brighter lights, get out there in the world and do what you are called to do. But this text about salt and light isn't about being a better Christian. The main point of our text today is that the suffering church is a display of God's glory. We aren't supposed to hear this message and go find some nice thing to do for our neighbor. The point of the text is that if you are truly in Christ, then by your very nature, you will do what God has made you to be, a display of his glory. So we're going to look at that in three parts. In verse 13, we'll look at the metaphor of being salt of the earth. What does that mean that we are salt? Second, we'll explore the light metaphor, compare it a little bit to the salt metaphor and see how we shine in this world. And then finally, take a look at the whole point of it all. Why are we to be salt and light to glorify our Father in heaven? So let's turn back to the text, starting in verse 13. I'll read that again. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So Jesus calls us salt of the earth. What does it mean to be salt? Well, today, if someone says you're salty, that might not be a great thing. It sort of means like you're crude and sharp with your words. He uses really salty language. So I don't think that's what Jesus means by us being the salt of the earth, that we should be walking around using crude language. 
it would be inappropriate for us to take an understanding of today's language and take it back 2000 into a 2,000-year-old text and say, that's what he means. That's what uh, scholars call anachronistic, reading backwards into the text uh, from current into history, current time into history. But what does it mean? Well, many commentators argue over what it could possibly mean. Some say that salt is used for flavoring, for drawing out flavors. So if we are the salt of the earth, then by our lives, by our testimonies, we add flavor to the world. We make the world more interesting. We take our redeemed creativity and go into the workplace and go into the uh, play areas and add flavor, add interest and beauty to the world. We engage the world with a Christ-centered perspective that gives a different kind of life and goodness that they wouldn't experience without us. Others say that the more ancient use of salt is as a preservative. They didn't really care about flavor. They were just care, cared about surviving. And they didn't have refrigerators, so in order to preserve food, you pack it tightly in loads of salt where no contaminants could possibly get through and spoil your food. And so from this perspective, salty believers keep the world from decaying, being destroyed by sin. We preserve our culture by bringing a righteous perspective into the world. So even though this godless culture hates us for what we say about their sin, they receive some benefit from us, from the good that we do, and we keep them from destroying themselves. A biblical example of this is the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 27, when he's arrested and being taken to Rome by ship across the Mediterranean Sea, and the ship is about to crash, about to sink in the water. And God gives word to Paul, says, no, I want you to get to Rome. I'm going to bring you to Rome. You are going to survive. And if anyone wants to survive, they better stay on the ship with you. And Paul tells them, don't abandon ship. You will surely die. God has given me a word that I will make it on this ship. So stay on the ship and we'll survive all together. So in a way, he had a preservative characteristic, nature, to those non-believers. They lived because God was blessing Paul. And so that's what this perspective would bring to our lives, that we bring uh, healing and health and some sort of prosperity to the world through God's blessing on us. Now, either or both of these options, flavor or preservation, could be true, but I don't want to spend too much time on that because I don't think that's the main point of this metaphor. I don't believe that these are marching orders for Christians that you should be salt, get saltier and go out and start preserving and flavoring things with your good works. There's no command in this verse at all to be salt. It says you are salt. There's no imperative verbs here. So I think that this is actually a warning. Jesus is actually saying, by your nature, if you are a believer, you will be a noticeable presence in the world. Salt could be flavoring. It could be a preservative. Sometimes salt is even an irritant. If you sweat, get sweat in your eyes, it burns or in an open wound. 
whatever way we interpret salt, you know when salt is present in the world, in your dish or in your wounds. You know it's there. And so the whole world should know of our presence like they would salt. The lives, our Christian lives should be obvious. I should be able to go talk to your neighbors, talk to your coworkers, your extended family, even the children who live in your home. And they should be able to say something about your Christian saltiness. Jesus is not saying that you need to get more salty. That's kind of the point of this rhetorical question. If salt loses its saltiness, how shall its saltiness be restored? The answer is it can't. It should just be thrown out. So you can't get more saltiness. Jesus is saying if you aren't salty, then you're not a true disciple in the first place. And in that case, you need to repent, turn away from your sin, and turn to God in Christ, the only one who is able to keep this law. And only His Spirit, by His Spirit, can we be transformed into useful, genuine salt. I think this warning is actually similar to what Jesus says to the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. That familiar metaphor where he says, I wish you were hot or cold, but since you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And a lot of people misinterpret that passage saying, you should be either on fire for Christ or dead set cold against him, but there's no fence sitting, no lukewarmness. I don't like that. That's a mangling of that text. What Jesus is saying is that hot water is useful. It's soothing. It's healing. And cold water is useful. It's cool and refreshing to drink. But lukewarm water, that's useless. What's the point of that? If you're lukewarm, you're like saltless salt, whatever that means. You ought to be spit out, cast out, and thrown away. This is another way of saying you'll know a person by their fruit or the saltiness of their fruit. If you're hot or cold, if you're salty, you show that you're a genuine citizen of the kingdom, rooted in Christ. And if you don't have any saltiness, you'll be tossed out. You'll be proven to be a a false believer. And then moving to verses 14 and 15, I think... The light metaphor is simply another way of saying the same thing, just using a different picture, trying to say it again in a way that maybe this time it'll sink in. So verses 14 and 15 again. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So the obvious point here is that a Christian cannot be hidden. There's no such thing as an anonymous Christian. If you've been working in the same place for 10 years, nobody should be able to say, oh, I didn't know they were a Christian. Jesus says we are lights and this world is dark. We remember from Ephesians 5, we are called children of light. We walk as children of light And he has put us in the darkness. He set us in dark places in order that we would expose the wickedness done there. We are lamps that fill rooms with light. 
the only way that you keep light from shining is by covering it up. But that completely defeats the point. Why would you light a lamp and then put a cover on it? That's not what Jesus has done. He has lit us and put us in the darkness so that we will shine in those dark places. He uses this metaphor of a city placed on a hill. A city set on a hill. You're walking through the valleys of the countryside, and it's obvious. It like keeps grabbing your attention because it's right there. How can you miss it? Every time I'm walking down, I just I see out of my peripheral vision. I have to look up there. And that's how we are as Christians. You, it can't be avoided. It can't be hidden. You can't put a cover over a city on a hill, and you can't cover the light of Christ alive in his people. This kind of reminds me of what is known in the missions world as the insider movement. There's this trend in missions to Muslims that in order to reach Muslims who could possibly lose their lives if they come to Christ, we're telling them, oh, uh, you can come to Christ, but you don't have to tell anybody. You can go about your business and continue to live with your family and do all your family rituals and follow them to the mosque and do the prayers with them. Go about all of that same business. So they think that you're still a Muslim, but in your heart, you're really devoted to Jesus. So when you're praying on your knees facing Mecca, you're praying not to Allah, but to Jesus. When you're chanting at mosque with everybody, they're chanting to Allah, but you're chanting to Jesus. But this concept isn't simply foolish, like, well, that's not going to work. How could that possibly work? It's actually self-contradictory. It's an impossibility to do such a thing. You are light. If you are light, people in darkness are going to see you. A Muslim who has become a true believer has the Holy Spirit in him shining the light of Christ. It's going to shine in the darkness. And the same truth applies to us here in a much freer society where becoming a Christian isn't as offensive to some. God has set your heart aflame as a believer. You are a light. He has lit a flame in you and placed you in your neighborhood, placed you in your workplace, placed you in your family in order to shine in the darkness. You can't go about your life as a Christian hoping nobody finds out that you're a Christian so you don't get mocked, or so you don't get teased, or so you don't lose that potential promotion. If you're light, you are going to shine and it's going to cause some people to squint or to hiss or to run away from you. If you're not shining on people, maybe you need to ask yourself whether you're a true believer in the first place. If you are truly light. Because if you are light, he has lit a flame in you, not just for your own comfort and for your own prosperity and for your own benefit. He has different purposes for your life in this dark world. Let's see what Jesus says about that purpose in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The main point there is rather obvious of why we are set as salt and light in this world. But I want to back up just a little bit And remember that we came into this section saying that suffering is the heart 
of blessedness from the Beatitudes. Suffering is the seedbed of receiving God's blessings. Remember in chapter 4 that Jesus had just gone all around the countryside, healing everybody he came across, gathering great crowds to himself from all over the region because he was healing so many people. And as I was reading that text a couple of weeks ago, I was frustrated. Why, God, don't you give my family that healing now? You're handing it out like candy to kids just running up to them, and now you're being stingy with your healing. But then before we start feeling too bad for ourselves, he stops that and moves on to a new message and says that in chapter 5, that true blessedness, greater happiness, is not in these temporal healings, but in the eternal promises of God. And here we see the way in which we are called to be salt and light and how we bring glory to our Father in heaven. Being salt and light isn't becoming famous, become a great star quarterback football player and get a huge following and then use that pedestal to start proclaiming the name of Jesus. That's not what it means to be salt and light in this world. It's a decent thing to do. And it's not even volunteering at the local soup kitchen where you have no following and people are probably going to curse you for serving them bland soup. That's a good thing to do as well, but that's not what it means to be salt and light. The heart of being salt and light is suffering well. Whatever circumstances you find yourself in, you season and preserve this world by your unwavering devotion to Christ. You shine your light in the darkness when you hope in Christ, when all the world is pressing in around you and you can hardly see right in front of you, you still shine that light of Christ. It's in these trying times that you most fulfill that calling upon you. This purpose that God has called us to. And what is that purpose? Us Reformed people know our Westminster Catechism, at least the first question well. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that's what Jesus is saying here, essentially. Our primary purpose in being salt and light is to glorify God. What does it mean then to glorify God? Well, if we go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, we're reminded what we were made for, how we were made, who we are, what our identity is. We see this idea of the image of God. And as we trace this idea through Scripture, we see that it simply means that people should look at us and know something about God. The way we behave, the way we live with one another, people can watch that and see, wow, that's what God is like. And as we live with joy and hope in Christ through our suffering, our image-bearing displays to the world our, the vastly superior worth of God. So it's interesting to see here in our text that Jesus doesn't say, you glorify God by being salt and light in the world. He's saying, you be salt and light, and other people see that, and they glorify God. It's not this direct me praising God that he's calling us to. He's calling us to a certain behavior that when people look at it, they see God at work. 
our entire existence is to is meant to show how wonderful God is above everything and even in our suffering especially in our suffering when we say God is more important even than my health and my safety I will go into this because he is worth it more than my comfort and prosperity and then people will look at us and say wow your god is incredible must be incredible if you're willing to give everything to stay devoted to him if you endure suffering like that if you fight for joy in christ when the world is crashing around you and you're content with whatever god has put you in the more the world is going to wonder what is it about them or as 1 Peter 3:15 says people are going to ask for a reason for the hope that is in you suffering is the prime circumstance in your life for you to be salt and light nobody no situation needs more savor flavoring and preserving than a person who is experiencing trials the monotony and numbness of every day feeling like what's the point adding salt to that situation brings hope nothing needs more light than the darkness of a person who is suffering in despair where they can't see right in front of them so if you are suffering trusting in Christ is the way that you proclaim to the world that he is worth it. And if you aren't suffering, find someone who is and go into their darkness and bring them that pleasing savor in the hopeful light of the gospel and help them be a light in their darkness. Nobody should be doing this lighting and salting alone. As I've said multiple times before, our sanctification is a group project. If you look at the words in Greek, in chapter verses 13 and 14 the word you at the beginning is actually plural it's not you individual are salt and light but you together corporately are salt and light we together do this suffering we together show the world that Jesus is worth every bit of this suffering we are a city on a hill think of that city on the hill it's not bright because there's one light at the top of the church steeple or something it's bright because there are hundreds of lights lit in the office spaces in the in the temples in the churches in the homes there are hundreds of lights and together they shine into the darkness of those valleys we do that by each one of us guiding or joining our lights together and mourning together and rejoicing together and grieving together but not grieving as those without hope we join our lights together and bear one another's burdens when we suffer together and in doing all of this one another suffering we are the salt and light of the world this salt and light isn't simply good deeds doing a nice thing for your neighbor that anybody can do You may have heard atheists try to or say something like I don't need to be religious in order to be a moral person. I can be a good person without being religious or without being in God. Lots of people do nice things for others. 
without believing in God. And in a way, they are right. The common grace of God allows people to do wonderful things for one another. They can do all kinds of nice things. But when you endure trials and suffering with hope and with and fighting for joy and trusting in Christ and receiving blessings from your brothers and sisters, that's a whole new ballgame that no atheist is able to do. It takes a special empowering of the Holy Spirit when your whole world is crashing down to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Anyone else without the Spirit would fall away and curse God. So the good works here in verse 16 aren't nice things for your neighbor. I think this refers back to the Beatitudes. The good works that people will see and glorify your Father in heaven are meekness, mercy towards others, peacemaking, your faith in the midst of persecution and suffering. When people see that type of work, then they're confronted with a whole new set of questions regarding God's existence and his work in this world. And not only does this type of hopeful suffering cause other people to ask questions, but it starts to work in you and keeps you from becoming too self-focused. If you're a careful reader of the Sermon on the Mount, in a few more verses, you're going to notice something that seems to be rather contradictory. Here in verse 16 of chapter 5, Jesus says, Let your good works shine before others so they can see it. But then you get to chapter 6, verse 1, and what does he say? Beware of practicing your righteousness before others so that they can see it. So Jesus is appropriately, for good reason, in chapter 6, confronting religious hypocrisy saying, that is wicked, don't do that. But he says here that you should do good things before others. So which is it? Do we do good works before others or should we not? We just kind of throw up our hands and give up on the whole thing. I think the answer to this conundrum lies in where the glory ends. Who gets credit for the good deeds? In chapter 6, Jesus is confronting the religious hypocrites who look like they really care about God. They're standing on the street corners praying, Oh God, you are so wonderful. Please uh, show yourself mighty in this world with kind of one eye cracked. Who's watching me? Oh, yeah. Oh God, I'm going to sing marvelous praises to you because I'm so pious. Oh, look at the crowd gathering around me. They really love me. And then they start fasting. Oh, I've been fasting for weeks, guys. I'm so weak because I'm so devoted to God, but His strength is going to provide in my weakness. Oh, I'm just so weak right now. Look at me. And people look at them and go, wow, they are such devoted people. But the entire point is not to show how marvelous God is, but to show how pious they are. This is worthless religion. This is the type of religion that Jesus is going to spit out of his mouth. That he's going to cast this unsalty salt into the streets so it's trampled. But here in chapter 5, the credit goes to God for these good works. People should look at our good works and see right through us to the God who is at work in us. 
They shouldn't be saying, oh, you are so faithful. You are so persistent. Way to go, Adam. Keep enduring. You're such a wonderful father. They should say, oh, God has been so kind to you. God has been so merciful to you. Look at God working, helping you endure. Isn't God amazing? This is the place of suffering. Suffer, we should rejoice in suffering because it brings us to this place where we are finally transparent, where we are finally so full of cracks that people can see God working through us. When you're in the midst of suffering, it makes you so weak, so tired, so broken, that if something incredible happens, clearly it's not because you did it. God must have shown up in power to do it on your behalf. It couldn't have been my pathetic self that rescued us. When you're suffering, you become so short-sighted, you can hardly see right in front of you. And you, your focus just narrows to right here. You're so weak and powerless that all you can do is hope for God to show up and speak those mighty words, let there be life. And when He does that, people are going to notice. They're going to ask questions about the hope that is at work in you. And by God's grace, they too will be transformed into salt and light so they can glorify our Father in heaven. So my message for you here today is not get salty or become brighter lights. If you are in Christ, you are already salt and light. Only God's Spirit has done that in you and praise God for that that you are salt and light, and be encouraged that if you are experiencing suffering, you have an opportunity to shine even brighter. But if not, you need to ask yourself whether you are truly salt and light. If you're not experiencing suffering, if people aren't noticing light in your life, saltiness in your life, then ask God, to change you and use you, make you useful so that He can use you to bring more glory to Himself, to shine the light of Christ into the darkness and make His fame known even more. May God do that to us more here at Redemption City Church. Let's pray. God, we rejoice in suffering because it simply peels back the facade, the whitewashed tombs and shows what's underneath. Weakness, brokenness, frailty, blindness. And in that we can finally truly see. So I pray, God, that in our moments of suffering, you would help us see. And I thank you for my brothers and sisters who have been sweet seasoning to my family who have brought light into our darkness. I pray, God, that you would make us brighter, that you would make us more savory so that we could bring you glory. God, plant us all around this city, all around this world, in the Philippines, in the Middle East, wherever you would have us as salt and light, send us so that we could be your instruments, your useful instruments of transformation. Start it with us, with my family, with Jake's family, with the families here at Redemption City Church. 
and make your light shine in the darkness. Amen.